Hello, listeners. My name is Rhonda Morris, and I'm the Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer at Chevron. Chevron is proud to sponsor the Lead from the Heart podcast. I am here with my colleague, Jay Lloyd, who runs a program in Richmond, California, that helps people gain the skills and aptitude to work in the petrochemical and related industries. He has personally trained around 200 graduates of this program. Jay will share a short story about a leader whose simple and kind act had a long-lasting influence on his career and how he leads others. Thank you, Rhonda. Beginning my career as a process plant operator, I faced a lot of challenges. Not just the obvious training challenges that will help you learn to master your particular unit, but getting used to the sights and sounds of such a volatile environment. I didn't have any relatable industrial career experience, and it seemed like nothing was going to help me progress through my training with ease. What I did have was a head operator, better known as an HO, that was patient with me and was willing to help me at every turn. My HO was diligent in providing tools that allowed me to progress at a speed that was proper for me to learn, but also held me accountable for the knowledge base and skill set that was necessary for me to succeed and progress through my training program. One of the most important things I learned from my HO was to have the willingness to put into action what I had learned while having the confidence in myself to know that what I was doing was the right thing to do, and if I was wrong, I could correct it. As the Chevron ROP instructor, I empower the students to open their minds beyond what they are accustomed to doing. I implore them to think outside the box without fear of criticism or failure. It's important for me to allow them the space to see themselves in the proverbial mirror so they can see what their individual genius looks like. I have taken from my former HO the ability to be patient while guiding each participant in the way that they should go. It's refreshing to see how each student grows intellectually, emotionally, and with a wider knowledge base, not just about process plan operations, but also in their personal lives. I take pride in paying it forward, especially since my journey is much like that of many of the people who are taking my class. I come from a similar background as many of the students, and I understand the value of having someone willing to take the time to help me become a better me. Because of that, I will forever be grateful, just as many of the students have expressed the same gratitude to me. And now, on to the show. Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. As you've heard me say before here recently, I believe that mind mastery training is on the verge of being widely embraced in business. We learned in a recent episode with Michael Gervais that Microsoft is already ahead of the curve by teaching mind management skills to its leaders, proven practices that have long been used by world-class athletes and military officers to significantly elevate their performance. I'm so intrigued by this and hope that you are as well, that I've invited another guest who has spent his career not only on the cutting edge of this training, but in developing it as well. Over a three decade long career, Dr. Eric Potterat has served as the lead performance psychologist for the United States Navy SEALs and for the Los Angeles Dodgers baseball team. He's consulted with the United States women's national soccer team, the Miami Heat, Red Bull athletes, NASA astronauts, and dozens of Olympic medalists. Eric retired as a commander from the United States Navy after 20 years of service, during which he helped create the mental toughness curriculum used during Navy SEALs training. What Eric learned long ago is that someone may have superb physical and or intellectual traits, but it's the stuff going on above the neck and between their ears that makes them excellent. The difference between settling and achieving, between good and great, between contentment and fulfillment, is based entirely on their mental approach. Now, we might tend to think that some people are simply born with extraordinary mind mastery, but it actually proves to not be innate. It is 100% learned. Through practice, people that we've observed with these skills learn how to think clearly, stay focused, and shrug off setbacks under very high levels of stress. And by the way, it's called mental training, but you'll soon realize the heart is very much involved in this as well. Eric has just published a book that teaches these practices. It's called Learned Excellence, Mental Disciplines for Leading and Winning from the World's Top Performers. And I invited him here today to take a deep dive into its content. In his book, Eric distills the insights he's learned into five mental disciplines for high performance, values and goals, mindset, process, adversity tolerance, and balance and recovery. My plan is to probe into each of them while Eric is with us. And with that, let me welcome him to the podcast. 
Welcome, Eric Potterat. Ah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I've been looking forward to this. I say that every time, but it's absolutely true. As I was reading your book, I'm fascinated by this, and I'm hoping that my audience is as well. So let's get into it. Very early in it, you set things up by saying that all of us are performers who regularly undertake challenging things that matter to us, and that the most important determinant of whether or not we achieve high performance is the work we do in the mental aspect. So from some previous conversations I had, I have a sense that the next frontier for organizations is going to be in training managers on performance psychology, where you're an expert. And so since it appears to me you're absolutely on the cutting edge of this, what is it that you specifically teach the United States Navy SEALs and world-class athletes that most of us have yet to develop in ourselves? Yeah, so... Obviously, I did 20 years in the Navy. The last 10 years, I was the performance and clinical psychologist for the SEALs, and then I transitioned to professional sport and business, et cetera. I think, as you stated, this is really the next echelon where I think people are doubling and tripling down on kind of above the neck and between the ears. I like the metaphor a lot of kind of software versus hardware, the computer metaphor. I think a lot of businesses and organizations focus on business tactics. They focus on physicality, nutrition, strength and conditioning, all very important. But I think at the end of the day, the piece that seems to be really moving the needle a lot, kind of the next echelon, is that software piece or the operating system. So I spent a career really focusing on empirically-based, evidence-based tools and techniques that really focus on mindset, on values, identity, adversity tolerance, tactics, balance, and recovery so that people can kind of become the best versions of themselves. Take me back in your history. How did you learn this to begin with? Like, in other words, how did you become an expert on this? I received my PhD in clinical psychology, and then I specialized pretty early in my career in the performance side. Obviously, I was an active duty military member, took commission as a lieutenant, and then moved up the ranks. And I started working with truly incredible humans, you know, the operational cutting edge humans, aviators, Navy SEALs, et cetera, and people who, who were probably performing at the highest pressure situations, the highest leveraged, highest load situations on the planet. And I became really fundamentally much more interested in performance optimization than I, than I was kind of the, the pathological you know, make people who don't feel well feel better. You know, that old adage is you don't have to be broken to get better. So I was really leveraging a background in in research and I'm a bit of an empirical geek and I like to bring to my performers what the research shows works. So just kind of was a kid in a candy store, you know, over a career of 30 years, I think I've worked with about 25,000 of the world's best performers in multiple verticals. And you just start to see You know, when you're exposed to all of these great performers, these men and women in business and first responders and medicine and military and athletics, you start to see the puzzle pieces differently. And I started to see themes that were very consistent among the world's top performers. And that's hence the book. You know, we kind of unpack what those pillars are. And ironically, to cut to the chase, they're all learned. So, you know, we can get into that in a little bit. So interesting you'd say that. I mean, I know that you said that in the book. At the same time, you sort of hinted that in the early stages of your career, you're applying the education that you got, but you're observing people who are already performing optimally. Yeah. And that's informing how you're teaching people who aren't. Is that correct as a premise? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And really, that was the point of doing the book that we did was to, we chose 32 people from a wide variety of crafts or verticals, CIA, Navy SEALs, businessmen and women, congressmen, cliff diver, big wave surfer, ballroom dancer, et cetera, neurosurgeon. And the whole point of this is, as you just precisely said, they've made it to an age and stage where they're performing really well. However, when you unpack that, they've navigated, they have certain traits that they've developed. They didn't, you know, come out of the womb with these traits. They've mm. been developed with parenting, with good coaching, good feedback, boards of directors, or that ecosystem of trusted individuals and coaches. So over time, what you see is these individuals are rising to the top of their craft, but it wasn't just by chance. It was trial and error. It was incrementally working outside of their comfort zone. 
it was treating failure as a good teacher as opposed to, you know, self-deprecation and, oh my gosh, I'm not meant to do this. So You're reading my mind and answering the questions, which is really helpful for me. I could just sit here and listen and, and really absorb what you're saying. And I love that you've pointed out both good coaching and good parenting. But I also, I hope we get a chance to get to this because I have a flow in my mind of where I want to take the conversation. But one of my personal fatal flaws has been, and I learned this, I was taught this, unfortunately, to be really self-deprecating. Like my joke is, if I'm not going to be hard on myself, who will be? And I've subsequently learned through the benefit of doing this podcast of how destructive that is. I'll just pin it down with you and just ask you to punctuate that you have to be, as author Anne Lamott said, militantly on your own side. Do you agree with that as a premise in terms of being able to perform optimally? Absolutely. When I retired from the military, I took a position with the Los Angeles Dodgers for seven years as their director of specialized performance. And we had one of our assistant GMs at the time. He used to say this all the time. And he basically said, you have to bet on yourself Mm -hmm. when he's talking about our staff and players in general. So I echo what you're saying. I think There's a lot of noise out there and, you know, we can get into that as well. But I think, you know, when you look at these elite performers, they're just managing these things differently. And one of the things I want the audience to think about, you know, I want to bring this up and throw this right on the table is, you know, you asked the question of what got me most interested in in the path of the career kind of specialization. I was so tired of hearing the narrative of I can never do what he or she is doing because they were born that way. So I went out and kind of explored that and, you know, working with the best people on the planet in their respective crafts, you know, multiple Olympians, thousands of athletes, businessmen and women, et cetera. And as I stated, it became very, very clear that they're generally doing the same things in the same buckets. So and a lot of that has to do with self-talk, as you just said, you know, they're navigating their belief systems very differently. They don't allow that inner voice to talk them out of things. They quickly look for the evidence rather than, you know, outside and the noise, the chatter that drives a lot of non-elite performers to start believing the noise. Why do so many of us fall into that trap of believing that noise? Why are we so susceptible to that? Uh, Boy, that's that's probably, you know, a multi-million dollar question. (laughs) I really think there's a lot of, you know, I, look, I'm not anti-social media. Obviously, I'm doing a podcast and, and all of these things. But I think a lot of these things are exacerbated by social media, to be honest. And the concern about how others perceive us, you know, reputationally, et cetera. And I think fundamentally, you just have to go back to what, you know, Alan and I are calling identity markers and really bet on yourself, believe in yourself, and then really, and I'll use this term this way, weaponize the tools and techniques that we know work to perform at the highest levels of pressure. So one last question related to this. Actually, I have two next questions related to this. The first one is, before we go any deeper, my very first question was that this appears to be performance psychology and learning the tools that you've been teaching for decades seems to be the cutting edge in business suddenly. And like, where are leaders going to benefit from this? So pique the curiosity of our audience and tell them that if you understand this information and you apply this information, this is the scenario or these are the situations where you're going to benefit in a truly profound way. I think at the end of the day, if we talk about back to that metaphor of hardware and software, right? Again, hardware, business tactics, physicality, et cetera. Software would be kind of your operating system or above the neck and between the ears. If we talk about businessmen and women, athletes, pick your favorite craft. It doesn't matter. Ultimately, what these softer skills are doing, the software piece is really leveraging and impacting the ability of one's ability to control the human stress response. And I'm not trying to get touchy-feely here, but really when human beings are in high-pressure, high-leveraged, high-load situations, think executive, making incredibly difficult decisions for his or her company, et cetera, or a neurosurgeon, a surgical team, that human stress response will start. And then a cascade of things happen, right? Not only the physiological effects of increased heart rate, muscle tension, blood pressure, all of that, but the cognitive skills decrease, the ability to think abstractly, 
the ability to problem solve, advanced problem solving. So if you look at these softer skills, the mental toughness skills, as it were, I think what's going to happen is you're going to have kind of a rising tide raise all ships. As people get more comfortable controlling that stress response and controlling their performance in high leverage, high pressure situations, they're going to be able to innovate better because they're going to think clearly. They're going to take appropriate, authentic risk as opposed to, you know, a lot of people, that little inner voice will say, no, I don't want to do this or I can't do this or I shouldn't do this. And there's a lot of incredible performances that just get squashed as a result, Mm -hmm. right? They talk themselves out of betting on themselves, back to that term. Well, that's where I want to go anyway. So I think fear and doubt plague most people most of the time at some level. And in the worst cases, it influences us to put off pursuing dreams we have for ourselves or to take courageous action. You just mentioned it. I'm not going to take that risk. That could backfire. And we don't really grow and benefit that way. So what separates the mindset of someone who you've worked with these people who dive off of high cliffs, come in as a relief baseball pitcher with the game on the line, or even the who I think is the master of this, Tiger Woods, whose mind never seems to let him down in the most stressful situation. What's the differentiator of these people? Yeah, Alan and I, we have uh, we unpack this in a very specific chapter in the book. And really the comment or the phrase we use is we think these individuals are kind of more likely staying in their circle. So if I ask you in the audience to kind of envision a circle, inside of the circle are three things, attitude, effort, and behavior, or put another way, attitude, effort, and actions. Outside of the circle is everything else. What my opponent might be doing strategically, the weather, what this business is doing, what the economy is doing, the global you know, war here, there, everywhere. So I think fundamentally, my direct answer to your question is non-elite performers, with all due respect to them, are mostly focusing on things outside of their control, outside of that circle. The only three things that human beings control 100% of the time are their attitude, their effort, and their actions. What's my attitude right now? Unless I'm physically broken, no one controls my effort. And then tactically, my actions, right, or my behavior. So I think, you know, you're mentioning the names, Tiger Woods, et cetera, cliff divers. You know, we interview these types of individuals and they're staying in their circle. They focus in those extremely high pressure times on what you and I hear all the time. I just controlled the controllables. Well, that's what they mean. They're really focused on executing through their own attitude, their own effort, and their own actions. Does that happen to be influenced by Stephen Covey's circle of influence? Uh, With all due respect to Stephen, I I don't know enough about the context there. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm aware of it, but I don't know if that's, we'd have to ask him if that's what he meant as well. I, yeah, I'm I'm not sure. It's in the seven habits of highly effective people. I won't digress very far. He talks about the circle of influence and the circle of control and the things that we don't have any influence over is where we should not be spending our time and where we should be are the very things you're talking about, attitude, effort, and actions. So it's, it's interesting. I think sometimes that brilliant ideas pop up in different places at different times. And I think this is just one of them. So thank you for answering that. You mentioned your career in the Navy and while you were there, you created a what you call the psychological assessment mechanism that helped you identify who would likely succeed in the Navy's underwater demolition SEAL training. And it's oriented on resilience and other psychological attributes. So noting that most of us are never going to even attempt to become a Navy SEAL or do any of that kind of work. Is there something important that you learned that we should apply to our own lives and our careers? And then I'm going to ask you the other question, which is like, what did you screen for? What were the flaws that told you that this candidate wasn't going to make it, wasn't going to succeed in the training? Yeah. So first off, these special operations individuals are, you know, I'll probably take my last breath on the planet and without a doubt say that nothing else compares to them. I mean, the rest, with all due respect to athletes, businessmen and women, surgeons, et cetera, all fantastic, wonderful people. But when you talk about leverage and high performance and kind of the psychological attributes, I just want to state that right off the bat. So Mm -hmm. as you stated, my role at BUDS at the time We had a a presidential and a congressional mandate to, after 9-11, to create 
500 more steals in a 10-year period. I won't get into all the boring details here, but there's only a few ways you can do that, right? You can lower the standards and increase the throughput, which is non-negotiable. That was an absolute not going to happen. Or you can try to figure out who is more likely to make it through the world's most difficult training. So this was a heavy lift. I'm not going to lie. Very, very heavy lift with a lot of a lot of research and a, and a lot of validation, et cetera. And what we landed on was what we ended up calling the computerized special operations resiliency test. And it, as you appropriately stated, it is a test, an assessment that measured resiliency traits and certain psychological attributes. Now, more important question is we're screening for a very unique type of human being that, you know, runs towards danger and Mm -hmm. their ability to control the human stress response is unlike any other. Outside of that, you asked, what can we all learn? I think that these individuals, they didn't just arrive in life this way, right? So I think that some of these resiliency attributes were, you know, we hear Angela Duckworth talk about this as well, grit, working outside of that comfort zone, being focused really almost militantly on incremental improvement. This trade of like, I'm going to be non-complacent. I'm going to incrementally improve. I'm not going to do too much too fast, but I'm going to try to get a little bit better every day. I think hardiness is something we can all learn as well. Our ability to bounce back and use certain tools and techniques, both cognitively and physiologically to bounce back after failure, adaptability, Think of these traits as almost like compound interest, right? I'm sure your audience, you think of your bank account, you get compound interest and over a day or two or a week or a month, you really don't notice much. But over the body of how long that savings is in the account, all of a sudden you start to see big things. And I think that's to assume someone can just do something for a weekend and be resilient is a false assumption. These are traits that can be morphed and can be modified, but they take time, right? They've taken time to develop and they take time to improve. How can we individually build resilience? Like what's that journey look like? And what's the first step for us? I mean, the first step is, as I said, we started to understand and and it became very clear with thousands of the world's best performers that they're generally doing the same things. And the first step or the first fundamental thing that we discuss is really developing the identity markers or what, you know, what I call the credo. And these elite performers are very keen and very good early on at almost accelerating the move away from reputation towards their true identity. And I know that may sound touchy-feely, but we all have kind of value markers or these identity markers that are the most important aspects of who we are and what we believe in. The non-elite performers, again, exacerbated by social media and whatnot, the pressure to perform in the eyes of peers, often we worry so much about what others think that we're doubling and tripling down on our reputation. What do people think of me? Well, these performers are more or less accelerating their ability to say, okay, I really don't care about what people think and I'm comfortable in my skin. And that's the fundamental thing. First, we need to have that identity marker, that value baseline. First thing, no apologies for touchy-feely around here. You know, I think we say those things to neutralize truth. And so what you're speaking about is really brilliant. And in fact, when I read your book, I thought, What I want to do in this part of the conversation is to actually put a special frame around it. I've never read this anywhere. And I think it's really unique, this idea of defining so clearly who you are and what your values are and what your purpose is and what your mission is. And you call it a credo. I need you to dig into this. So when you're starting to work with someone who wants to optimize their performance, you actually start by having them develop this 10-word credo. 10 words, not a narrative, not paragraphs, specific words of their choice that I think in reading it are evocative. They're inspiring and they're clear in the sense of these are my walls, this is my boundaries, this is who I am, this is who I'm not. So Tell us why this is such an important first step and then the process that we can all take to build one. Yeah, I really like the metaphor of a compass. You know, in order to start, we kind of need to be oriented, right? We need to figure out where true north is. So I think you're spot on. We talk about this in the book. I limit it when I do work with people. I limit 
their credo to 10 words. Otherwise, we get, you know, these theses and dissertations of like, you know, long novels. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. what I want people to do is kind of boil down in that, you know, veritable crucible, you know, the 10 most important things that you identify with value-wise, or again, we call them identity markers, and put them on paper. I've seen a lot of creativity around this. I've seen people do sentences. I've seen most do independent words. And the reason this is important is literally if we treat this as a compass or a different metaphor, almost like glasses by which you view the world, every decision that one makes should be vectored through and following true to the credo. You know, I have to say, like, if I get a call from a colleague or someone who says, hey, I've got a great business opportunity, the old me might have jumped at that opportunity based on reputational issues. Now, literally, Mark, I make every decision, literally, based on how it's bouncing off of my credo. Is this who I am at my core or am I being seduced to do something for a different reason? And I think that really is the first step in the work with these individuals. That's what we see the best performers, again, doing over time. We strongly believe that the best of the best are just accelerating a natural progression anyhow. Most humans in their lifespan are going to care less and less what other individuals think about them as they age. But we believe that the best of the best are just accelerating this and they're doing this earlier. So therefore, when I do work, I'll put a, you know, a period on this now, I'll stop talking. But when I do work, I want to be a catalyst to help accelerate that in any performer I'm doing work with. Well, one of the problems with this, not specific to you, I have actually helped organizations create clarity around their cultures. So they've got a past culture that doesn't line up to who they want to be or who they are now. And we'll spend a lot of time defining the credo, if you will. Yeah. But the commitment that I've asked people to make is like, don't just bring me in to do this exercise and not be willing to do what you said, which is that you then have to make every decision tied to this. Like, these, this can't be words on a wall here. So how do you get people to have that discipline that once they've put those 10 words together, that they use it as a legitimate filter and say, you know what, I could make a lot of money like that, but that's not the way I'm wired and that's not what my credo is. And so I'm going to pass on that. How do you get away from the seduction, as you called it? Yeah, you uh, you brought up that D word, that discipline word. So a great book I'll, I'll throw out there as well is obviously Charles Duhigg and the power of habit. I mean, when you look at habits, and I'll bring up an example right now, we're headed obviously to the end of the year, the holidays, and most Americans will make a New Year's resolution, right? And most of those are around weight loss or gym memberships. I want to get healthier, et cetera. And we know year after year, Gym memberships, they skyrocket right near the end and the beginning of the year. And then within a few, you know, three, four, five weeks later, they're back to where they were. <laughs> so it's that lack of discipline piece, right? So to answer you directly is literally when I do work with individuals, we force them to identify what these are and then literally write them down and put them someplace they see them every day, whether it's on their desktop, whether it's a piece of paper in front of them. And the challenge is, is to and we check in as an executive coach to them or as a performance coach to them that to give tangible examples of where you made decisions that week based on credo. So again, here's the key word, right? The way to become more disciplined is to sustain action. So if things get sustained long enough, then they become a habit and then you're not worried about it anymore. It just gets baked into your, your everyday perspective. It takes time. I already know you've memorized yours and that you're living yours. So tell everybody, what's your credo? Yeah, so I have worry. You know, wonder is a very important word for me. I definitely, I never want to lose a sense of wonder or awe or curiosity. So wonder, stay humble, stay hungry, stay connected. Like humility is very important. Non-complacency, you know, the stay hungry piece is very important for me. I want to be as non-complacent and incrementally pushing myself out of that comfort zone. Connection to people is really important to me. I want to laugh. I have a, believe it or not, I have a relatively, I think, reasonable sense of humor. I like to laugh quite a bit with my friends and colleagues. I like to listen. Obviously, I'm talking a lot during this because you're asking me questions, but generally, I'm, I'm the type of individual that's going to do more listening than speaking. So those are the types of words that are my credo. 
You're a very good listener for what it's worth here. I've observed that your ability to internalize a question and to remember the sequence and to answer them and to be thorough with them is, is a talent. So thank you. I do notice that. I want to keep going with this credo here. So how long did it take you to put that together? My own? Yeah. I often tell clients if it's done in 30 minutes, it was done poorly. I think most of the clients and myself included, I probably codified mine and it, you know, it became clear in my mind in my mid thirties and I've stayed pretty true to that, but I iterated and a lot of my, you know, athlete clients, a lot of my business men and women clients, they'll iterate as well. They may put 10 together and then they decide after, you know, some work on it that, Hey, I want to change a word or two or take one out and put one in. So it took me a while, but now I, I literally make every decision based on credo, literally. So I'm going to use two people as an example. The first one is the cliff diver. And the second is the symbolic listener. So in other words, how does a cliff diver and how does a, we'll just call our listeners leaders, use the credo in their everyday management of their lives? So I'm pinning this down a little bit more, but I'm curious as to like, why would a cliff diver have any interest in putting a credo together and then apply that to everyone listening? I guess what I'm really getting after here is I don't want anybody to dismiss the importance of this. I think it's that important. Yeah, one of our 32 interviews with incredibly remarkable humans was with uh, a cliff diver named David Kulturi. David's an amazing individual, and he talked about the, you know, to answer you directly, once the credo was developed and he doubled and tripled down on that, it was the first time he started to dive and start to do things for himself. And he noticed the performance needle moving significantly, ironically, as well. Whereas most athletes at an early trajectory, I'm going to generalize, and there's always exceptions, but at an early trajectory, most people are concerned, right? Because especially in athletics, unlike business, you may have stakeholders, you may have key associates and members that are judging performance, but my goodness, in sport, that gets magnified by 10x, 15x. You have 60,000 fans day after day. You have ESPN telling you what you did wrong, what you did right, so-called talking head experts here and there. So that noise, again, outside of that circle can be deafening, right? And I think with David and the cliff diver, the work started with the credo. There's a lot of other things we unpack in his particular case in the book that he talks about, but it really did give him this, and he talks about it. For the first time as a diver, I felt free. I felt like I could be creative. I felt like I could innovate. And lo and behold, the results started to move in an incredibly powerful direction. Now, to answer your question, why is this important to the average businessman or businesswoman listening? It all starts with being true to oneself. As I said earlier, if we're going to bet on ourselves, we really need to do the right thing. Here's the irony, Mark, is I have yet, and I've been doing this for years, I have yet to come across a performer that writes a credo that has really bad things in it. Like, hey, I want to be a cheater. I want to, I want to manipulate people. I want to be, I want to be, you know, profane. So the irony is, is if people a, dictate a credo, and B, literally follow it, ironically, the reputation is going to be good anyhow. So they're focusing on the right things, and all that reputational stuff is going to follow. Who's not going to like someone who you know is competitive, authentic, kind, whatever your credo is? I'm really glad we went down this because I, I totally agree with you. And, and in my observation, the people that I admired in my career in seeing people at all levels of leadership, particularly at the top, which I found interesting because I don't know if you've seen this in your career, but what I observed, unfortunately, is that the more senior people got, the more Machiavellian they became, like the more protectionist they became. They were threatened by other people climbing up the ladder behind them as opposed to being advocates. So my sense of those people is that they didn't have a credo. If they had a credo, they'd be advocates. They have an abundance mentality. They see the best for their people because that would help the organization thrive. So these people are coming out of fear or, you know, ego, who knows? But what I observed is that the people that were really the most exceptional knew who they were with great clarity. Totally. And, you know, not just knew, but acted on it. So whether they had a written credo or not, 
they'd already done that work on some level. Like they were so secure in who they were that they could do their job knowing this is who I am and this is what I do and this is how I'm going to go about doing it. 100% yes. And I'm thinking back to my career, both in the military and even in, in professional sport, the bosses I've had, the best bosses I've had, I think you hit the nail on the head. They're so authentic. And I think leaders who are authentic, the people they're leading can see it a mile away. Those of us with children, when kids are young, they're like sponges. They pick up on everything. And I think the people we're leading can pick up as well. You know, the SEALs, when I worked as their psychologist for a decade, when I was active duty, they had a a term that I really liked. And it was, you know, calm is contagious. And I really like that. I hear it all the time. Me too. I went one step further and we unpacked this in the book. And I said, yeah, you're right. But emotions are contagious. And I do think that leaders, you know, I think those who are leading I think are very perceptive and they can pick up on the contagion if someone's not being authentic. Yeah, I agree with you. You mentioned emotions and, you know, one of our beliefs here is that we don't observe those things, we feel those things. So we're sensing that authenticity. We're sensing that, hey, this person's done work that I don't normally see, (laughs) you know, like this person has great clarity on who they are and who they're not. And we feel that, and that has a profound influence on us. So thank you for spending time. I'm going to take the frame off because I just, honestly, I hope our listeners, if they do anything with this, is that they spend some time to put a credo together and make the commitment that you're prescribing, which is that if you're going to do the work, lift to it. And I think it's transformational. So well done. Thank you. We had Ron Shake on. He's the really a true genius he created Panera Bread. He's got another restaurant chain called Cava, which is already on track to outdo what he already did with Panera. And he interestingly said that one of the things that I do, he's a very wealthy guy. I think he's got a private island somewhere in the Caribbean, but he's not the guy that goes and sits at the beach all day long. He goes there and then he spends all of Christmas week just thinking about his goals and career, relationships, health, spiritual, hobbies, legacy, which is important to him. He's got all of that. And he spends it a lot of time just dedicating himself to pinning those down and writing them down every single year. So this is sort of aligned somewhat to Credo. But separately, there's really great data that confirms that this is such a great practice. So that's in your book, too. Tell us why. Yeah, so within a few chapters in the book, we focus on within the balance and recovery section as well as the goal setting section. I agree with everything you just said with respect to Ron. The performers that we unpack in the book and then the thousands you know I've worked with, they tend to be highly balanced individuals, meaning they're focusing on multiple verticals in their lives, not just what they do. They are not only what they do. That's the problem with a lot of individuals. They become what they do as opposed to as you said, setting goals and health, hobby, spirituality, legacy, et cetera. The reason goal setting is important is, as you've alluded to, there's some pretty incredible research with respect to why it's important. So if one just ideates and thinks about a goal, like, hey, as we go into 2024, my goal is X, Y, Z. Let's say it's weight loss, whatever it is. If we just think about it, statistically speaking, the individuals who think about a goal have about 43% chance of achieving that goal. If you actually put pen to paper and write down the goal, now, okay, I want to lose X amount of pounds in X amount of time, that goes up to 62%. And this is where it gets incredibly powerful. If then one has an accountability partner and one verbally shares the goal. So not only did I ideate a goal, I want to lose weight. Not only did I write it down, But I called my friend Mark and I said, hey, this is my goal for the first three months of 2024. That statistic goes up to 76% likely to achieve it. So not only is goal setting important in general, but it's if you really want to move the needle and have results, which at the end of the day, whether you're an athlete, you're a military member, first responder, results are important. You focus on the process of writing these goals down and verbally sharing them with someone you're going to actually increase your odds of meeting these goals. And lastly, if you set these goals and you write them down and share them in these six buckets, work, health, relationships, spirituality, hobbies, and legacy, it's going to force balance as well. That's really cool. 
uh, going back to your January one losing weight, go to the gym kind of a thing. The the most compelling part of this isn't just that you write them down, but that you have somebody who will hold you accountable. Who do you recommend for that? Because sometimes, like if this were you and I and we're friends, and you say, "Hey, Mark, I want to lose twenty pounds, and I'm going to run twenty five miles a week, and I'm going to the gym five days a week," and then we talk a couple weeks later, and I go, well, "How are you doing on the running?" Well, I didn't get a chance to get out there. You know, a friend might say, oh, that's okay. You know, Eric, you'll get there. But somebody else, a little bit more demanding and and really understanding what their responsibility is would say, what's up with that? Like you made the commitment. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. We talk about the importance of having a board of directors and people you can receive valid and vetted and honest feedback from. You know, mentors are a good first start, I think. I have two mentors in my life that are very important. So if I wanted to set a goal and verbally share that and write it down, I know I'm going to be held accountable to those. I think executive coaches for the businessmen and women, the average professional athlete has between, I think, nine and 13 coaching staff around him or her. Everything from biomechanics, strength and conditioning, mental performance. Do they really? Yeah. The average professional athlete has a huge ecosystem of accountability partners, if you will. Now, the average businessman and woman obviously doesn't have or need that many. But to answer you directly, I I don't think this is necessarily a spouse. I don't think this is a best friend, although those are good options. But I think it's, you know, a mentor, a coach, someone who can hold you accountable, who's not tied to you as a best buddy who might let you off the hook. I like the idea of a board of directors, and that has played an unusually helpful role in my life by having people who are supremely credible, high achieving, and understand who I am and what I'm trying to achieve, particularly in times where it's a struggle. Like what I'm doing is I'm feeling I'm struggling. And what do you say? And they can give me perspective that is almost exclusively you're seeing it all wrong. Like You can't see the bigger picture, so let me help you. Totally. And then they dust you off and get you back into work. And it's like, you know, I'm so grateful for those relationships. And I, I totally encourage people to cultivate those and to be that for other people, even them. Totally agree. Totally agree. Go back to touchy-feely here. I mean that with no sincerity whatsoever. You write that When it comes to goal setting, that people struggle most in the spiritual aspect of their lives. And I thought that was interesting. And what you mean by that is coming in touch with their humanity. I'll ask you to flesh that out. But why do you think people struggle here? And why is it important that we make a greater commitment to setting spiritual goals? So I think when most people hear the term spiritual, I think to go back to what you just said, I think immediately people think, oh, this is kind of fuzzy. What does that mean? I think there's a marked difference between it. By the way, spirituality can mean religion, but it doesn't have to be. Obviously, religion is is more codified, more organized, more structured, a framework around that. I think spirituality is just having a sense of peace and purpose. It can be as simple as, you know, just understanding that this universe is pretty remarkable and just taking the time to observe nature and observe things. You know, that can be a spiritual goal, like literally nature walks, time alone meditation. You know, these things obviously can be tied to a religion, but don't have to be. So I think it's the one that I've noticed my clients over the years struggle with a small S, right? It's just a moderate struggle compared to other goals that they can set quite quite easily and quite readily. You know, it's interesting because this week, actually, Pew Research came out and said that seven in 10 U.S. adults consider themselves spiritual. And they note that that's at a time when attendance in churches and affiliations with a specific religion are declining. So this caught my eye, not this report, but the idea that you're emphasizing the importance of this struck me. You also mentioned nature and being out in nature. When COVID hit and the gyms closed, I thought, I've got to do something. So I started getting up at 4.30 every morning and have done this every day now since COVID three and a half years later. And I walk the beach for an hour and I'm there by myself. And I tell people this and they're like, you're out there in the dark by yourself? I'm like, it's the greatest thing in the world because 
it's just like I'm getting downloaded with all kinds of ideas related to my work and my life and my relationships. And it's that that's spiritual for me. And so I won't miss it. I don't have a problem getting up early to do that. And you're emphasizing that for the very same reasons. Yeah, it's funny you say that, Mark, because there's a lot of research that's come out you know, in the past maybe four to seven years, it would just it's it's continuing to pour out into the general public about, you know, just simply nature walks. And ironically, we're so action focused, I think, as performers in general. Like we have a call to action and sometimes inaction and just taking time to pause in nature. Great studies are coming out about changing the ions around the body. I mean, the brain is wired to be in nature. So sometimes just getting away from real world problems or difficult business decisions, difficult whatever decisions you need and unplugging and getting in nature, just like you said, you come back with a completely different perspective and you're solving those things because the brain is meant to be not in brick and mortar facilities under fake light 24-7. Fake light. It's interesting you should say that because... When the gyms reopened and, you know, the worst of COVID was behind us, I swore I would never start my day in a bright light gym again, you know, and the thumping music, it's like it's an assault on you. So, (laughs) you know, hey, you mentioned meditation. Do you advocate for that? I do. Yeah. If you interview 10 different people to define why it's important, you might get 10 different answers. For me, I'm a simple guy. Like for me, I I think that meditation focuses a presence or at least flexes or forces a presence, which I think is, I think nowadays, like this could be an entirely different podcast, but I think nowadays we're so, high performers in general are so focused on the future. And that's why people are successful, right? They're thinking about deadlines. They're thinking about all the things that they need to do in the future. So I'm not asking people to be less future oriented. But I do think we need to counterbalance that with more focus on, you know, being present. So I do think, you know, I'm agnostic to the type of meditation because I think two commonalities that most meditations have are the breathing, the focus on certain breath work. And then number two, it just forces you to be here and now in the moment. And I think far too many of us are so focused on the future that it's important. I think meditation brings us back to the presence in a great way. By any chance, have you read Rick Rubin's the book, The Creative Act? I have. Yeah, fantastic. That's like one of the most remarkable books, but it's deeply spiritual and without being overt about it. And interestingly, somebody pointed out that there's symbolism behind the entire cover of his book that I thought was fascinating. But I mentioned it because I think you would, if you hadn't read it, that it would line up to everything you believe but also I highly recommend it to the audience. It's called The Creative Act, A Way of Being by Rick Rubin. It's a New York Times bestseller and it's an extraordinary, it's an inspired book. I agree. I grew up in New York. I'm a Mets fan, but was also a bit of a Yankees fan. And Yogi Berra once observed that all the great players he saw in his life were motivated to win by something unique to them. So I'm sensing that Yogi had great intuition into people and he called it their engine. So he could see that there was some personal motivation that influenced the very best players to excel that way. And how do we identify our own engine and how do we identify the engine of others? And how does our engine influence our credo? Yeah, prior to taking my role with the Dodgers, I was active duty at the time and I went to give a talk to the New York Yankees and Unbeknownst to me, uh, obviously, Yogi was was in the audience as a mentor, you know, iconic figure. And he's the one who approached me after my talk. And we had a discussion and he brought up this idea of what he called an engine. And I, I found it fascinating because in, in my world as a psychologist and performance psychologist, you know, you always kind of think about a motivator, like what motivates someone. And I think that discussion with Yogi, as well as kind of my background, really in early work with people, not only do I want to have them build their credo, but I think it's important for people to understand what their motivators are. And I'm agnostic to what they are. For a lot of people, it's unfortunately, sometimes it's reputation. For some people, it's money. For some people, it's fame. Again, I don't get paid enough to judge anyone, but it's important to understand what's that engine, that that engine, because it's going to affect what they're running towards. So I, I do think it's important. We counterbalance that with credo and not to get too deep here, but Credo is more values-driven, and the engine is more the motivator. 
So if we think of this simply, if I'm value driven to have security, I want security as one of my credo identity markers, then my motivator is going to be money. So I'm going to be motivated by money because financially, value-wise, I need to have financial security. I'm not saying that's mine, but I'm saying in general, that's the difference between the two. I think the credo influences one's engine, as Yogi said, or a motivator, as I would say. Well, very cool that you met him. He's an extraordinary person. People attribute all these malapropisms to him, but he was a true genius, Yogi Berra was, and what a great experience for you. Last question before I turn it over to you is, tell us the importance and value of developing pre-performance routines and rituals and how that might apply in work. Oh, man, this is huge. Again, I'm going to throw in a metaphor, right? I love this metaphor of a dimmer switch not an on-off switch. So if I want your audience, by the way, if any performer tells you that he or she can just show up and perform optimally, just show up and perform optimally, I'm going to respectfully doubt that. Maybe there's a very small minority of individuals on the planet who can do that. But I think most people have a process to become white hot. That's why rather than an on-off switch for a light switch, I love this metaphor of a dimmer switch. And I'd like you and your audience to think about that. Like when you think about going in from one role to the next, like, you know, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, and I'm going to go perform at, you know, pick your favorite role, whatever that is. There's a process to doing that. So I think we unpack these in the adversity tolerance chapter of the book. And One of them are both, one of the techniques is a pre and post performance routine. So how do I weaponize my mindset to perform in that role that I'm about to play? So think about another way to think about mindset or the importance of pre-performance routines is pre-performance routines will kickstart a mindset. I'm going to age and stage myself here, but you know, I... In my age, I love to still do some athletic things. We ski, mountain bike, pickleball, run, et cetera. And if I'm trying to do something that I think is important physically on the performance side, one of my routines is music, right? I'll listen to ACDC's Thunderstruck or Metallica or something because it will get my mind kickstarted and ready to go. So I'm agnostic as to what the routines are the pre-performance routine. I'll say this, it doesn't matter what they are, it matters that they are. Meaning for some people it can be a meal, for some people it can be a meditation, it can be an article of clothing. You mentioned Tiger Woods earlier, he and Roger Federer wear red, obviously when they're competing in the finals, that's to catalyze their own mindset to perform optimally. So Hmm. I would challenge your audience members to really, if they haven't already, Think about the different roles that they play. And as they transition from one role to the next, how are they getting ready to perform with something? Maybe everyone needs their own walk-up song. I don't know. I mean, it's interesting you should say that because that's what I was thinking as I'm listening to you, that when I speak, I'm a ritualized guy to begin with, but I am very ritualized when it comes to preparing to give a speech, not just all the preparation and the practice that nobody sees, but the moment right before there's a whole ritual that I go through that includes meditation and listening to two specific songs and then just sort of saying, okay, you are now ready. You've done it. Now go do it. And it's never not worked for me. But I also learned it in playing golf that when I finally got a pro to help me, the first thing he said was, you got to get out of your head. And we got to get you into a ritual so that when you get up there and before you make that swing, that you've already had five, six very positive swing thoughts and you know what you're trying to do and you've got a whole system in place and it's proven to be invaluable to me. So I totally agree with you there. Eric, we're going to stop here for a moment and move into what we call the heartbeat round to help us learn about you more personally. I'm going to ask you 14 questions that we want you to answer instinctively and quickly. In other words, in a heartbeat. Are you ready to play? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Most effective thing we can do to combat stress? Breathe. I think that's by far the most important. It's going to control the physiological response and it's going to force control in the areas that you have 100% control of rather than kind of outside of the circle. One book on mental mastery you recommend we all read? Hmm. I would say Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. 
Very good. I have it sitting here on my desk. That's why I'm smiling here. Something important and new you specifically learned in the process of writing your book. I think I was surprised and blown away with just how consistent and similar the ingredients to success and excellence are. You know, I mean, we can look at all these different verticals and all these different crafts, how consistent and similar the ingredients are. So regardless of what you do for a living, just how consistent and similar these ingredients to success and, and excellence were. So that really surprised me. The quality that derails the most leadership careers. Hubris. I think forgetting that good leaders create other leaders, not followers. So I think ego gets in the way here. I think we've done 120 plus episodes so far. And I've asked that question probably 90% of the time and 95% of the time the answer is arrogance or hubris. So pretty obvious. That's the big winner. The trait you admire most in other people. Non-complacency. The thirst to get incrementally consistently better. A ritual that you use to elevate your own personal performance. Music as a pre-performance routine. I'm definitely all in with respect to music and helping performance. Cultural value every organization should have. Treating feedback as a gift or a kind of a superpower, both giving and receiving. I've consulted many organizations throughout my career, and I think the best ones, they kind of make this a cultural pillar of like, you know, we are going to receive feedback, we're going to give feedback, and we're going to learn from that. So I think feedback is a value every organization should have. Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life. Live in a foreign country. We lived in Spain for three and a half years. And if you can't live in a foreign country, I would say extensive travel, but for sure, live in a foreign country. Lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life. That failure is not the boogeyman. Take more risks, lean in, say yes. Failure is, is a great learning opportunity. So take those chances. What do you do for fun, renewal, and recovery? We live here in San Diego part-time and we live in Montana part-time. So I think my recovery and, and renewal is in Montana. Ski, hike, mountain bike, fly fish, anything outdoors in the great state of Montana. What you've learned to do when your mind suddenly takes you into fear and doubt? Stay in my circle. Focus on those three things that I can control, attitude, effort, and behavior. Stay in my circle. Prediction about the future you're pretty certain is going to come true. I think given the incredible technological advances with AI and generalized AI, I think superpowers, kind of the soft skills, if you will, empathy, emotional intelligence, compassion, curiosity, these things are going to be worth their weight in platinum. I think the leaders the performers who stay true to empathy, emotional intelligence, compassion, curiosity. I don't think AI, I don't think robots. I think that this is going to be the separator, the differentiator between truly good leaders and truly good humans. I'm totally thrilled. Our audience is applauding you for saying that. And I will tell the audience that over the coming months that we're doubling down and focusing on every single one of those topics that you just mentioned. So that's encouraging. One thing people would be surprised to learn about you that I'm a dual citizen of Switzerland and the United States. Oh, wow. My father was born and raised in Switzerland, so I hold two passports, and so I'm a dual citizen. Very good. And then finally, your synonym for the word heart. Passion. Great. Hey, these are wonderful answers. So thank you for going through that with me. Thank you. Appreciate it. As we end this, Eric, this is broadly a leadership-focused podcast, and I have two final questions for you. What's the single most actionable and specific piece of advice you can give us to cultivate greater mental mastery? And finally, how can we as leaders help coach our people to maximize their own human potential? So I think the single most actionable specific advice would be to set incremental goals outside of your comfort zone. Meaning think about those six pillars that we talked about, work, health, relationships, spirituality, hobbies, legacy, and really think about one, three, and six-month goals and incrementally continue to work outside of the comfort zone within those areas. I think that not only forces balance, we already talked about the importance of setting goals, sharing goals, et cetera, but I think the actionable specific piece of advice to cultivate you know, this mental mastery is to incrementally work outside of your comfort zone. The mistake people make is they try to do too much too soon so they're trying way out of their comfort zone. It goes back to that compound interest, right? If you make these incremental changes over time, you become you know, a master of, of the mental side for sure. 
one of the things that I've observed through this entire conversation is that you pack a whole lot of information <laughs> in your answers. There's a lot to take in. So I just want to tell you, thank you. I've totally enjoyed this conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed your book. And on behalf of my audience, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it, Mark. And thanks again. Before we go, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on LinkedIn and or Twitter or X. I'm at Mark C. Crowley on both of these sites and I post on them frequently. And everything I do is with a goal of advancing the Lead from the Heart podcast philosophy or the book's philosophy, my philosophy. So please join me if you'd like additional resources. Besides being a podcaster, I'm a professional speaker and a managerial excellence consultant and would love to come to your organization to help you at your next meeting or leadership challenge. I want to honor my team who helps me produce our show, including Mr. Ken Boynton, Carrie Finnessy, Randy Yant, Anna Boynton, and my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz. And I want to thank Chevron, all of its leaders around the world, and especially to Chief Human Resources Officer Rhonda Morris for believing so strongly in our mission. Our theme song is Take the A-Train, a jazz standard written in 1939 by Billy Strayhorn. That was the signature tune of the Duke Ellington Orchestra, and our version is performed by the masterful BBC Big Band Orchestra. And now I leave you, but with my two constant reminders. Number one, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. And number two, love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Mm -hmm.